get into the Bible. We're in Luke chapter 1 this morning. Um, we have been in a series um, starting last week called The Stories Within the Story as we look at various stories, um, lives of individuals, characters you might say, in the story of the Advent, uh, the birth of Christ, people who, were, who God used, uh, people whose lives were uh, affected uh, in one way or the other um, by, this, um, by this coming of Christ. And, you know, this time of year, um, we rightfully so put all of our emphasis on Jesus, right? He's the star of the story. Uh, all of the rest of us are supporting characters. We forget sometimes, maybe in the midst of all that, that, that Mary, that Joseph, um, that um, th- these, char- these people... Um, were not just people that just kind of sprung into being when God decided to send Jesus into the world. Uh, they had lives before Jesus came. Uh, they, had, they, had, they had moms and dads and, and, uh, and families and dreams and aspirations. And so the coming of Christ into the world had a dramatic impact on their life, just as when we believe on Christ, he has a dramatic impact in our life. And uh, so as we look at these characters, what we want, we want to see, we we'll kind of see some of ourselves in them sometimes. Some of the things that they dealt with, we still deal with as we, as we follow Christ and all the implications that the gospel has on our lives today as we follow Jesus in a world that is broken and messed up. I was thinking um, this weekend, um, as I was thinking over the, the message and in particular uh, this particular week's story, I was thinking about how when I was a kid, I used to love the, um, the little Christmas chains. Do y'all remember the Christmas chain? Uh, little paper rings, and they would, there would be 25 of them, right? And you'd start on December 1, and every day you'd tear one off, and you'd keep it on your doorknob. And I used to love those things, but they used to frustrate me, right? Because as a kid, I loved Christmas, and every time I saw several of those things, it was, it was just a reminder of how far Christmas was away, right? And so I wanted to, you know, can I tear four off today, Mom? Can I tear five off? And I had to learn it didn't work that way, right? Uh, it was one at a time. You had to learn patience as you waited until it got down to that one last little ring, and nowadays, here we are, all these 30 years later, and it seems like those rings come off way too fast, right? And so there's less, like, there's like no time for anything. I I view it totally different now, and two weeks, which is about how far we are from Christmas today, doesn't seem like a very long time at all. In fact, if your calendar's anything like ours this Christmas, there's a lot to get done in the next couple of weeks. Church stuff going on pretty much every Sunday morning and Sunday night, personal stuff going on, things going on with, with work and with family and all these different things with kids' school and all that that kind of compete for your time and attention on your calendar. And if you're a really talented shopper like myself, you like to delay your shopping till the end because you just want to be challenged, right? So it's starting early is no challenge at all. So I like to be challenged in those last couple of weeks. And, um, but we have all kinds of things going on. And the one thing people don't like this time of year is, is curveballs, interruptions, detours, things that kind of blow your plans up because your calendar's pretty much set at this point. We don't like interruption in our plans. And if we got really honest, and general truth is, human nature is we just don't like interruptions and change of plans at all. Not just this time of year. It's just kind of magnified this time of year. But, the, you know, as we think about that, there are bad interruptions and there are good interruptions. There are times our plans get changed and we're like, oh, great. And there are times it's it's bad, right? A friend calls and says, Saturday morning, says, hey, I really need some help painting today. You're like your close friend, you know, maybe a family member, and you're like, I don't want to paint today. That's a bad interruption, right? Or I need help, the, the one we all love, I need help moving, right? Nobody wants to help, by the way, if you're, nobody wants to help. Um, so <laughs> people are willing to, but nobody wants to. No, nobody wants to. Um, 
And then there's like good interruptions, right? Hey, we're going golfing today. Do you want to go? Sure, all of a sudden my calendar's free, right? It's, there's, good, there's good interruptions and there's bad interruptions. But as a general rule, we kind of like to have things planned out. We kind of like to know what's coming next. And we don't really want to detour too much from that. But we have all lived long enough to know that life is full of detours and left turns and right turns and four-way stops and roundabouts and intersections. It's full of interruptions and things that kind of can misplace our plans. And life is moving fast. And as soon as you think you have life figured out, usually something changes. And if you're a Christian this morning, you've probably learned that God is in the business of interrupting your life. He's in the business of changing things from time to time. Divine interruption, you might call it. You may have plans and God may change them or he may allow circumstances into your life that changes the plans and the dreams and desires you have. The point is, though, being a Christian doesn't, doesn't excuse us from these changes, from these detours, from these interruptions that happen in life. In fact, to the contrary, it may only heighten them. This week, we're looking at the story of Mary. Mary's story is one of divine interruption. Mary has a plan. Mary has a life. Mary has a direction. She has dreams. She has goals. She's not just sitting around looking for something to do. And Mary's plans, her goals, her dreams are all going to be interrupted by God. And it's, we're going to look in Luke chapter 1, very familiar text, verses 26 through 38, where we're introduced to Mary, who would be the mother of the Lord Jesus. Look with me in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So at this point in the story, we're just going to kind of pause and, and, and talk about it as we walk through it. We've got Elizabeth who's been pregnant six months, and now God sends the same angel that went and saw Zechariah. He sends that same angel, Gabriel, to give a message to a young girl, a virgin by the name of Mary, and she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, betrothal uh, was like a super serious engagement. It was, more, it was different than our engagement. There were legal ramifications. It required a legal divorce to undo this uh, betrothal. So there was, a, there was a lot more seriousness. There were contracts, so to speak, being signed and things of that nature. This was a serious deal, and so this is a very serious engagement. So she's got a plan. She's got a purpose. She, she's got something going on in her life. She's got that special someone, and Joseph and Mary have dreams. Verse 28, and he, the angel Gabriel, came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she, Mary, was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Hmm. Troubled her, that saying. You have found favor with God. That word favored one is kind of, an, kind of an unusual greeting, right? What does it mean? That's what Mary wanted to know. What does it mean to be called favored one? The Greek word is the word used for grace throughout the New Testament. And here when he says you are the favored one, he is saying literally you are endued with grace. Mary has been shown grace. She has been shown favor by God. Now it's important to note here, God chose Mary in his grace. The Bible gives us no reason to believe God chose her outside of his own gracious choosing of Mary. The Bible never tells us she was chosen due to something she did or performed. It's quite the picture for us. It was God in his grace choosing to use her for his purpose. And when it says Mary is endued with grace, she's full of grace, the idea is not that she's full of it to give, 
She's not the giver of grace. She's full of it in that she has received it. She is one who needed grace, who has received grace. So why is she troubled by this saying? Well, Luke tells us what brought fear was, in fact, this, what brought trouble to her was not just the fact that there was an angel in front of her, but the saying itself. The idea that the Lord is with her and she's found favor seemed an unusual saying to her and it troubles her. More about that in a minute. Look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom of his kingdom there will be no end. So she's given a little more picture of the plan here. Now, Luke doesn't share this, but Matthew in his gospel tells us that when Gabriel told Joseph that the name would be Jesus, that he told him it would be because he would save his people from their sins. So there's something about the name of Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, that, that tells us of his work and what he came to do. And what he's telling her here is that your baby is going to be the Messiah. That's the shorthand of what's happening here. He is going to be the king who will reign forever. And as a Jewish girl, a teenager at the time, Mary's greatest longing should have been the coming of the Messiah, his reign. The Messiah's coming into the world to rule and to reign forever. That would have been, should have been, any godly young Jewish girl's heartbeat. Just as any godly believer in Christ Jesus today, our deepest longing is for his, his second coming, his return. She's finding out what her role is going to be in that. So it's, there's an excitement here. And look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Does that response sound a little bit like Zechariah's response last week? Zechariah had questions too, right? Zechariah, the shorthand of his was more like, give me a sign, I don't believe it. I'm too old, okay? And there's similar questions, but there's a big difference here. One is asking in, in doubt, one is asking in faith. One is asking in a kind of doubt that's kind of sneering at what's being said to him being delivered by an angel from God, one is asking with wonderment and faith and not this can't be or how, can, how will this be? It's asked in faith. Verse 35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the six months with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Gabriel explains to Mary how this is going to happen. She asked the question, right? I'm a virgin. How is this going to happen? And notice she's assuming she's going to be a virgin when this happens. She's, she's assuming a virgin birth. How, how will this happen since I am a virgin? She's not assuming this is going to happen once the marriage vows are completed. And Gabriel explains that this is going to be of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a miracle. This is not going to be a normal child. This is the Son of God. He says it clearly here. So the virgin birth here of the Lord Jesus is not some little thing, right? He says, therefore, the child will be called holy, the Son of God. Virgin birth is not something to be put over here and say, maybe you believe it, maybe you don't. It's a, it's a cornerstone in what we believe here because therefore, the child will be holy, be called the Son of God. Mary's response is ideal. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And Luke is using Mary to paint a picture of what true faith and obedience to God looks like. Zechariah's and Mary's responses are intertwined. They're shown here in Luke chapter 1 as Luke is 
writing Theophilus as he's writing to him about the, the certainty of the things he's heard, writing to him about the truth of Christ. He's warning him to sh- see what unbelief looks like and what faith looks like. Now, we know Zechariah in his story, it ends well. But he's given us a picture of the right way and wrong way to respond to God. Or you might say to talk to an angel. Right? Three things we learn from Mary's experience about when we are interrupted by the Lord. When the Lord changes our plans. When things go a different way than maybe we were expected and God introduces a new plan to us and as, God, as we begin to follow and obey God's will as believers that I want us to see this morning. The first thing I want you to know, this first observation, is that God in his grace will, in fact, interrupt our lives for his glory. The Bible's full of this. We see it with Mary. She had a plan. She had dreams. She had goals. Like I said, it wasn't like from birth that she was told that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. She finds out as a, teen, as a teenager who's engaged to be married, betrothed. She's not sitting around waiting on God to give her something to do. She's living life. But the interruption that happens that basically blows her plans up was due, to some degree, was due to God's grace. Do you see that? It's the favor of God, the grace of God. The same word in the New Testament. She's been favored by God. She's been graced by God. She's been endued with God's grace. It is, gr- it is grace that God is showing her, kindness and favor. She's being chosen by God to be a unique instrument in his ultimate plan of redemption. None of us are Mary. Well, let's get that clear. Just like last week, I can tell you none of us are John the Baptist. These were special, unique individuals um, in the history of the church, in the history of the world. But every single believer in the room this morning, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, in Christ, you're favored by God. You're graced by God. In fact, the only other place that this exact phrase is used in the New Testament is speaking of believers in Ephesians 1, 6. So let me read to you Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. It's to show you the only other place the Bible uses this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Here it is, verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You have been blessed with his glorious grace in Christ. In Christ. In Christ, you are favored. In Christ, you are loved. In Christ, you are treasured. You are uniquely loved and treasured and graced by God in Jesus. And God can and will use his grace, his favored people for his glory. And many times that will mean divine interruption in our lives. That your plans will get blown gloriously to pieces. And God will have a whole new plan. God's been doing this for a long time. In Genesis 6, he's going to destroy the earth with a flood, and a man named Noah finds favor, finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. God uses Noah to preserve a people. In Genesis 12, there's a pagan by the name of Abraham. God chooses him out of the world to create for himself a people, interrupting Abraham's life. Genesis 50, Joseph is minding his own business. Next thing he knows, finds himself in a pit and and as a slave, and then as a, in, a, in a prison, and then the next thing you know what? He's, he's like the right-hand man to, to Pharaoh in Egypt. And all of this, he finds out at the end of his life, was the hand of God 
to save for himself a people, to preserve his people. God interrupting Joseph's life. Moses, right? He's out minding his business, and then all of a sudden, boom, burning bush. Moses will forever be different and used by God to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. David, tending the sheep, chosen by God to be king. Life forever changed. Think about the disciples. Jesus told the disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And then you read the Gospels, and that's in fact what happens, right? They're minding their own business, and Jesus is like, hey, come follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. They're leaving behind businesses. They're leaving behind occupations. They're leaving behind their lives as they know it to follow Jesus because they've been divinely interrupted, change of plans. The apostle Paul had a plan. And then on the road to Damascus, he meets the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ who knocks him off his horse and says, I've got a new plan for you. You will be my witness to the Gentiles. Throughout history, God has interrupted people's lives. In his grace, he chooses to use flawed people like you and I for his glory. Now, none of us are any of these people. But in Christ, as those indwelt by the Holy Spirit... Each of us has a role in the story of God. Our story can be used in His story. Our lives can be used for His glory. And it will mean interruptions for His glory, change of plans for His glory, things that will happen that will catch us off guard for His glory. And we don't generally like the idea of that because we like to do things our way. Every, uh, mo most days, I pick up my son, Cannon, from preschool, from VPK, at lunchtime, take him out, to the car to his mom when she picks him up. So I go in downstairs and I pick him up and take him outside. <coughs> and that goes one of two ways. One way it goes is I go in about 11.15 and he's eating lunch. And he looks at me, he's just started eating lunch, and he says, I'm eating lunch with my friend. Cool, got it, right? 30 more minutes, I'll be back. I got other things I can do. Another way it goes is I can go in at 11.15 and he says, hey, 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 I want to eat lunch with you. Right? So he wants to come sit at my desk and eat lunch with me. All depends on what he wants, though. Either way, the interruption, he's okay with it as long as he's in control of what happens next. <laughs> I think we're all a lot like Cannon. We're okay with the change of plans as long as we give, give us option A, B, and C. Give us multiple choice and let us, let us select what happens next. But that's not really the way it happens for Mary and it's not the way it happens for us. <coughs> at conversion... Thankfully, God interrupted your life if you're a believer in Christ. You were, the Bible says, dead in your sins. You had big plans, but your life was going to end miserably. And now, if you're in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, you are God's. You are Christ's. And your life is no longer your own. And as a believer, as you read God's word, and as you plug into God's people, and as you live life on mission, your life will be interrupted over and over again with moments to be used by God for his glory. It may be as simple as people coming across your path to share Jesus with. It may be a call to gospel ministry. It may be a call to the mission field. It may be a call to foster or adopt a child or children. It may be a call to a particular ministry opportunity in your church or your city. It may be as simple as someone, a neighbor or a loved one, someone that God places in your path that you can help and that you can love on. But you can guarantee this. If you walk with Jesus, plans will change. Things will happen. People will interrupt your life. God will interrupt your life. Opportunities will interrupt your life. And you won't get to pick and choose all of this. 
If you've been saved for long, think back over the various times in your life you had plans and God changed them. Maybe it was with a promise from his word, a truth from his word. Maybe it was with, from encouragement from God's people. Maybe it was your circumstances and God working in your circumstances to kind of lead you in a different direction. You may not have known it then, but now you look back and you go, wow, God was interrupting my life. God was changing my plans. God and his grace for his glory will interrupt our lives. That's something we have to grasp, something we have to understand. Makes life a little bit easier at times if we can understand. The one thing that's sure to be, to not change is that change will happen. And apart from divine interruption, we'd all be lost. So we embrace, as believers, we embrace it. Because we're looking in faith, we're following someone else. We know we're not in control. We know we're not. We know we're not the boss. So with open eyes and open hearts, by faith, we follow Christ. Now the second thing, second observation here, that helps us as we navigate these change of plans and these divine interruptions is this. Know this, God's grace shatters our fears. Fear is a natural response to change. Fear is a natural response to interruption. Mary responds to the idea that she's been favored by God initially with fear. It troubled her. The saying is what troubled her. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? What all did it entail? What, what, what's coming next? God certainly seems to have a plan for her. He sent an angel, a top agent, right? What does all this mean for my future? Mary's response of being troubled and even afraid is, is normal. It's normal. This shows she's human. We don't like the unknown. We don't like what we can't see. We don't like not knowing everything and what's around the corner. And the who, the what, the where, the when, the how, that's what we want to know. And all Mary had was the who at this point. God is with you, and the rest is to follow. Have you ever been faced with the unknown and been afraid? Ever had your circumstances change and been afraid? Ever felt God pressing you and nudging you in a direction and felt afraid? Ever felt God calling you towards something and felt afraid? It's normal. The angel knew she was afraid, but he knew she couldn't stay there. If she was to move forward in faith, she would need to see her fears conquered. And notice how the angel addresses her fears. Do not be afraid. And he basically tells her the same thing again. You have found favor, grace with God. The same grace, the same favor that had startled her is now going to comfort her. It's almost like he's saying, maybe you didn't hear me. I said favor, not wrath. I said favor, not hate. I said favor, not punishment. I said favor, not condemnation. Hey, Mary, I mean he's for you, not against you. I mean he's good. God's grace is meant to shatter our fears, not to incite them. God's grace should make his people fearless. Think about the book of Romans, my favorite book, my favorite chapter, Romans 8. Paul gets to the end of it after giving us this incredible picture of the gospel and all that's true for us in Christ Jesus. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? In Romans 8.31. If God be for us, who can be against us? The very idea that God's favor, God's grace is on us in Christ, that God's grace has been lavished on us, should lead us to a place where we ask, what in the world is there to fear? What do I have to fear? And next, Gabriel gives Mary more details about the child, right? God's grace toward her, his favor was going to mean she'd conceive and bear a son named Jesus. He then explains to her who he is. And from this point on, we never 
sense fear in Mary again. We sit here ask a question, but no fear is shown. Why is that? Why does her fear seem to dissipate? Because God's grace is most clearly shown us in the work and the reign of Christ. It is the gospel of Christ. It is the grace of God in Christ specifically that shatters our fear. Gabriel gives several pieces of information about the baby, right? His name is Jesus, meaning God saves. He will be great. Now, John the Baptist, we're told, will be great before the Lord, but Jesus, we're told, will be great. No qualification. A lot of comparison in John and Jesus, and all of it's to show Jesus is greater, by the way. Son of the Most High. In other words, the Son of God, which you'll say more clearly later. Throne of his father David, he says. He will have the throne of his father David. In other words, he, your son is descended from David, making him the rightful heir to the throne. He's the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. He's the rightful heir to be king of Israel. Reign over the house of Jacob, over the house of Israel. He is Israel's true king. What does he say? He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the chosen one. He's the one you've been waiting on. He's the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15. He's the one that God God was talking about when he promised David that his his reign would never end from his family. He's the one. And he goes a step further. Forever his reign will be. Of his kingdom there will be no end. He's the eternal reigning king. Listen, if you want to see and behold and understand and grasp the favor and grace of God, look at Jesus. If you want to have your fears erased, when change comes your way, when difficulty comes your way, when challenges come your way, when interruptions come your way, look to Jesus. The more she learns about Jesus and about God's work through Christ, the less fearful she seems to be. And by the end, the less questions she has. Notice he's, his being, notice his big close. Gabriel's big crescendo is this, for nothing will be impossible with God. That's a faith-building statement. As Mary had heard about Elizabeth and now even more, and the, the miracle God had done with this lady who had been barren for years, who's past the age of childbearing, and now she's going to give birth. What a miracle, but now an even greater miracle. She's going to conceive as a virgin and and give birth to the Messiah. Gabriel says, listen, for nothing will be impossible with God. Look, Mary, the Messiah is coming to reign forever. What is there to fear? With God, nothing is impossible. And all fears, when we grasp that, get shattered. See, if we know Christ, if we know Christ, What do we need to fear? If Christ is to reign forever, and you know Christ, if if his kingdom will never end, if he's truly the son of the most high, the son of God, then why would we not follow him wherever he says go? And when God's word says, fill in the blank, why would we not say, yes, sir, and get going and obey? When God calls us, why would we even consider not following The story of Jesus tells us nothing's impossible with God, therefore there is nothing that we should fear. He looks at Mary and he says, listen, (coughs) let me me boil it down for you, Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. But, I have these plans, but, I don't know what this is going to mean, but there's a lot that's going to come with this. Nothing is impossible with God. 
Nothing is impossible with God. He's, he's building her faith, and Mary apparently believes this by, according to her response, right? And that's an incredible promise for us, just that verse alone. That promise is fulfilled for us in Jesus, right? He says, nothing for nothing will be impossible with God. He's pointing to Jesus and he's saying, listen, here's what this means. Here's what the coming of Jesus means. It means nothing will be impossible for God. In other words, your story ain't over. In other words, life, resurrection life, living forever, nothing's impossible with God. Not having to pay for my sins that I've wronged others and wronged God, nothing's impossible with God and Jesus. Dead marriage, nothing is impossible with God. Broken relationship, unbroken patterns of sin in your life, long-term addictions that you can't seem to shake, nothing is impossible with God. That's the promise we have in Christ through the gospel. He says, nothing's going to be impossible. Your whole world's about to be shattered is what he's saying. As one famous author said, everything sad is coming untrue. Your fear of insignificance? Christ, it is Christ who is great. Your fear of failure? It is Christ who is the conquering king. Your fear of man? It is Christ who is the son of the most high. Why should you fear anybody else? Your fear that it's impossible? Nothing is impossible with God. The answer to all our fears is Jesus. It's Jesus. One more observation. We should always respond to God in faith and surrender. Mary's response is a model for us of when we're challenged and when we have these detours and when we discover God's will for our life is different and when we discover that God is interrupting our life or our circumstances have changed and we're trying to figure out what's next. The proper response to God is always faith and surrender. That's the big takeaway from this first section on Mary. By the end of Mary's story, she's singing. Okay, not really the end of her story, but the birth narrative. She's singing and worshiping. But here we get this picture of faith and surrender. This interruption is about to change her life forever. God's favor on her life is going to shape the rest of her life. And it won't all be easy. It won't all be a Hallmark card. Or a Hallmark movie. Here's what we know. Mary is most likely a teenage girl, as I said earlier at this time. She is betrothed to be married. She is now going to be pregnant. Before this marriage is finalized. In their culture, this would mean enduring ridicule and shame and reproach. Her reputation would be shattered in her culture the moment this goes public. Then there's Joseph. As far as she knows, he's seen no angel. What's he going to think? Would he believe her? Would she lose him? If so, would anyone ever marry her? What's her life going to be like? These are real questions in her culture. When Mary says, I'm all in, when she surrenders, she does so with her reputation on the line. She knows that life as she knows it is being completely blown to shreds. She's putting her whole life and future in God's hand. What she's saying is, I trust you. I'm all yours. I'm your servant. Do what you will. Notice two things about her response that should help inform ours. First of all, she pondered in faith and not unbelief when she wrestled with this. Mary's question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? It's a question rooted in faith. It's different than Zechariah's question. He was, his was rooted in unbelief, as I mentioned at the beginning. Hers is wonder. It's wondering. 
It's this, man, this is an amazing statement. What all does this mean? How will this happen? It's in faith. She assumes, like I said earlier, she'll be a virgin when it happens. Her question is really pondering in faith, thinking out loud, wondering. It's not a dismissiveness. There's no sneering at God. There's no, it's, wow, how will this be? What happens when she ponders like this? She gets more information. She learns more about God's plan. She learns more about the virgin birth. And when we ponder in true faith, when we aren't rebuked, we're edified. When we go to God's word and we say, what does this mean? Show me, teach me, I'm teachable, I, I, I don't understand, but I believe, we grow. That's different than when we go, can't be so. I don't see how in the world this can be. We kind of push back against God and we push back against his word and we, we, we doubt God versus when we come with these questions of faith just going, God, walk with I want to walk with you through this. Teach me, grow me, mature me, show me. That's what's happening here. She gets more information. See, there's a way to to ask questions of God, of your faith, that is sinful. And there's a way to do it that's not. And parents get this. Sometimes kids will say, they'll say, hey, go do this. And they'll say, But why? And sometimes, they really don't understand what's going on. And by the way, we need to stop and explain to them. And sometimes, it's a way to delay doing what you've asked them to do. And it's usually because it'll be more like this. But why? And then there's like three or four things they want to do instead, right? So there's a way that they can ask a question, and you're like, okay, I I get what's going on here. I get your heart. And there's another way where you can kind of go, I get your heart. Right? (laughs) Your dark, sinful heart, right? Your deceptive little heart. There's two different ways to ask questions. And as we grow in our faith, we will have questions. And there will be times we do not understand what God is doing in our lives. And there will be times we don't understand how to apply God's truth to a particular situation. And Mary and Zechariah show us a right way and a wrong way to respond. Don't doubt. Don't roll your eyes at God. Don't explain to God how something won't work or or doesn't apply to you or your situation. Rather, in wonder and faith, seek to know more. A posture of trust. Stepping towards God in faith. Stepping towards God in obedience and going, "I I just help me understand and what I can't understand. Just help me to trust you. So ponder in faith, not unbelief. And secondly, we learn from her response, that faith will manifest itself in surrender. All ways, true faith, will manifest itself in surrender. Ultimately, in Mary, we see this picture of surrender to God's will and his purposes. Faith in God always manifests itself that way. Mary says, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I just love that. should be our prayer. be a good prayer to just wake up every day and say, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word today. The angel then departed from her, right? His work is done here. Notice that her surrender is rooted in her identity. She starts with who she is. I am the servant of the Lord. She's identifying as God's, as God's servant specifically. Because who we are and how we see ourselves shapes everything about us. If Mary is in fact God's servant, what choice does she have but to obey God? 
Servants obey their masters, their lords. Mary starts there. This is who I am. And believer, <coughs> you and I will never walk in surrender to God's will through the interruptions of our life if we don't know who we are. If we walk around constantly having an identity crisis, not, really who, not knowing whose we are and who we are in Christ. Because see, if you belong to Jesus, it changes everything. Your choices are narrowed. And the only appropriate response to God and his word is obedience. So her surrender is rooted in her identity, but also notice her surrender can, was aided by her attitude. And our surrender can be aided or hurt or hindered by our attitude. She calls herself not just God's or the Lord's or I just belong to the Lord, but I am the servant of the Lord. That's the title. That's a humbling title. And our attitude towards God and towards who we are in Him can, can aid or can hinder if, if we're proud, if we're arrogant versus if we're humble and teachable. See, our identity informs our attitude. When I know I belong to Christ and He's the King and I am not the King, He's in charge and I am not in charge, I am God's and I am under Him and I'm to obey Him, when I, that's my identity. It begins to shape my attitude and that begins to affect how I approach interruptions, change of plans, my life being blown up. Think about Mary's future for one second. This favor that she's going to be shown. We mentioned the immediate impact, but think about this. She's going to, as we mentioned, endure ridicule for this pregnancy. She'd have to flee town at one point. As you continue to read the gospel narratives, if you read Matthew's narrative, she has to flee town at one point to keep her son from being murdered before he turns two because the king didn't like the birth of the king. And he decides... He would just kill everybody under two in that town. She'd watch as the leaders of her religion and her culture rejected her son and falsely painted him as a criminal, accusing him of things he did not do. She'd watch as her other children that she would have after Jesus didn't believe him to be the Messiah, thought he was crazy at one point until he rose from the dead. And then one of them writes a book for us, James. She had watched as her son was falsely tried and then crucified like a criminal between two thieves after being beaten profusely and died what was considered the most shameful death of that time. I wonder, in the difficult and painful days, because she's a human, she's not God, she's, she's not perfect, I wonder in the difficult and painful days how often she remembered her own words. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She was going to need to continually have her identity shape her attitude and her attitude help her as she walked through. This wasn't just like she was going to have the baby and it was all going to be over. Things just got more complicated after that. Things just got more painful after that. Things just got more difficult after that. Notice also that her surrender was proved in her submission. Ultimately, she says, let it be to me according to your word, according to your statement, according to your promise. It's a picture of submission to the promise and plan that's been laid out. Just her saying, I'm all in. 
Because surrender to God's will is always manifest in submission to his word. His promise. His revealed will. There's an old hymn called, I Surrender All, right? All to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. But to sing words like that and to refuse to submit to Jesus shows we're not really surrendered. A lot of times by surrender, this is what we mean. God I'm good with your plan as long as it doesn't require, and then we fill in the blank. As long as it doesn't cost me anything, as long as it's not too painful, as long as it's not too difficult. But true surrender is always rooted in submission to God's revealed will, His revealed purpose, His revealed plan, His word. You can't live surrendered if you're not submitted. This idea that I'm just surrendered to God's will and God's plan, not if you're not obeying His revealed will and His revealed plan. Well, God hasn't led me to do this, but I'm surrendered to whatever he wants as I rebel against his word. No, 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 no. If you're not submitted to what the word says, then you're not really surrendered to the will of the Lord. Nor am I. We see in Mary's life that being favored by God, being graced by God, does not mean a life without pain. In fact, in this life, it meant much pain for her. And in our lives, many times, it may mean much pain. God chose Mary according to his grace and used her for a glorious purpose. And 2,000 years later, we're still telling and being shaped by this story. But in Mary's life, it was hard. Right? In our life, we pretty it up. In her life, it was difficult and painful and worth it. And worth it. The baby she gave birth to saved her from her sins bled and died for her on the cross and for Joseph on the cross and her other children on the cross and for you and for me on the cross. God in his grace chooses to use us in his plans and he has lavished his grace upon every believer in this room in Christ Jesus and he wants us to be involved in his plans. He wants us to be involved in his purpose and he wants us to follow his will and obey his will. He wants to use us to touch other people's lives and his grand narrative and he wants us to use us to make disciples and to love others and as we love God and love others and make disciples he wants to use us in all these ways and he, in all of our circumstances but it does not mean it won't be easy, that it will be easy. It does not mean that we won't have questions. It does not mean that our life is going to end in this world with a pretty little bow on it. But like Mary, we need to respond to God in faith and surrender. If we, like Mary, are the servant of the Lord. Maybe today you've never surrendered for the first time. This story is ultimately, as we see, about Jesus whose name means Yahweh or God saves. He came to make us right with God, as we talked about at the beginning of the service, to make peace with God through the blood for us. He made peace by the blood of his cross. He, he's reconciled us to God. We put our faith and trust in Jesus, and our relationship with God that has been severed by our sin is put back together, and we come under the rule and the reign of Jesus. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to literally return to the earth, and he's going to rule and reign as king. And all of his enemies are going to be put under his feet. And all of his people are going to gather and they're going to worship. And the Bible even says they're going to reign with him. But if he's not ruling and reigning in your heart and your life now, if you're not surrendered, if you're not submitted, if you haven't repented of your sin and believed the gospel, if you've not given your life to Christ, 
then you're going to be one that's put under his feet in judgment. The baby in the manger is the conquering king and the judge of all the earth. And the most important thing is life is that in life is that we know him. And the most tragic thing is to not know him. Let's pray.